We'll start in Isaiah 42 this morning. Um, Before we get going here, I just wanted to take a minute uh, just to to thank the Lord. Um, Today is my seven-year anniversary uh, with my wife. Um, She didn't know I was going to say anything. (laughs) Um, I I think even our even our closest friends don't don't realize how much I depend upon her. Um, I think last year, especially when I started this teaching job and uh, was going back to school myself, and all of the the pressures that that entailed, and I, I'm not the kind of person that shows a lot of emotion on the outside a lot. You guys have probably realized that already. Um, but a lot of times the people that don't show it on the outside feel it even deeper on the inside. And I, there were times when it was really hard, um, and I depended on her a lot, even more than what she realized. And I'm just so thankful for her. I'm so thankful for every year that God's given us. Um, and I think if I... If I could give my wife any compliment, I think the greatest compliment that I could give her is to say that I know more about what it means for Christ to love me because of the way that my wife loves me. And I know more about what it means for God to rejoice over his people with shouts of joy, like it says in Zephaniah 3, because of the way my wife rejoices over me. Um, and I don't, I don't think I can say anything greater than that about her. You know, I know God's love in a greater way because of her love to me, and, and I'm just so thankful for that this morning. Okay, Isaiah 42, verse 1. <clears throat> Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Now, when we think of the person of Christ and we think of the various roles that he fills, the various offices that he fills, We usually think of three main ones. We think of prophet, priest, and king. And those are the three obvious ones that you would get as you read through the scriptures. He's a prophet in that he spoke forth words from God to man. He was a priest in that he offered gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of men. And he was a king who said, my kingdom is not of this world. So prophet, priest, and king. Well, what we see in this verse here, especially in verse 1, and what I want to talk about this morning is another role or description that the Bible gives about the person of Christ. And in some ways, it's just as big and it's just as important as the other three that we typically think of. And that's the role of servant, the role of servant. So not only is Christ a prophet, a priest, and a king, he's also a servant. And not just a servant, but the servant, the only true servant who's ever lived. Christ's role as a servant is one of the things that makes him so wonderful. You know, we usually think, we tend to think of servants as being inferiors. But in the person of Christ, everything is reversed. It's part of his glory. It's part of what makes him so wonderful that he was a servant. So Christ is a servant. So the first question then that we need to ask ourselves this morning is that if Christ is a servant, then whose servant is he? And the most obvious answer to that is that he's the servant of the Father. He's God's servant. Right here in verse 1, Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And then again, I'll just read these to you in Isaiah 52, Behold my servant will prosper. In verse 13, He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Behold, my servant. Isaiah 53, 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And then one here from Ezekiel. 
And there's so many of these in the Old Testament. But from Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 24, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, but using the person of David as a, a picture of Christ, it says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. It's something in these two verses. You have Christ talked about as a servant, talked about as a shepherd, and talked about as a prince. So Christ as the servant of God. And there's also passages in the New Testament we could look at. We're not going to do that right now, but... But I do want to look at a few um, in the Gospels because there's, there's some passages that don't specifically use the word servant about Christ, but yet it's clear that it's talking about Christ as being a servant. And just read a few here from the Gospel of John. For example, Christ said things like this, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. So Christ was sent. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me, talking about the Father, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I mean, it's so clear here. He's talking about himself as a servant. He didn't come on his own initiative. He didn't even say anything apart from what the Father told him to say. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then again, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And then one from John 17, we read this on Wednesday when Dick preached. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And so these are wonderful verses and they're full of wonderful truths. For one thing, we can learn from these passages that Christ didn't just come into the world willy-nilly, but he came with a purpose, he came with a plan. He came sent from the Father to accomplish something, to do something. And that everything that he said and everything that he did was in accordance with what the Father wanted him to say and what the Father wanted him to do. Absolutely, perfectly, an obedient servant in every way to his Father. But, in my mind, there's something that's even more amazing to be learned by considering the servanthood of Christ. And this is really what I want to focus on this morning. Um, I had asked earlier that if Christ is a servant, then whose servant is he? And we had said that he's the servant of God the Father, and that's certainly the primary and foundational answer, and that's the basis for everything else that I'm going to say here this morning. If we don't get that, then we're not going to get anything else. But nevertheless, the Scriptures in the New Testament tell us that Christ is also the servant of someone else. And who is it? His people. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Christ is our servant. Christ is our servant. Matthew chapter 20, let's turn there. You'll remember the situation. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus and requested that her sons would sit on his right hand and on his left in his kingdom. Quite a bold request. And then in verse 24, it says, In hearing this, the ten, the other disciples, became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Now here it is. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. In the book of Mark it says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And then in Luke 22 it says, For who is greater the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, Jesus is speaking, I am among you as the one who serves. So Christ is not only the servant of the Father, He's also the servant of His people. 
One author said this, commenting on these verses. He said, at first, this only sounds like an example to follow. Don't lord it over your fellows, serve them. Why? Because the Son of Man set you an example. He serves. He gives his life. So at first, the verse sounds like an example to follow. But then you ponder for a few moments and it hits you. Wait a minute. This is not just an example for me to follow. He is not just saying, serve the way I serve. This is the Son of Man serving me, ransoming me from my sin and my death, refusing to be served by me, insisting on being the servant and the Savior in my life. This is not just another teacher with some rules about how to live, gathering some radical disciples to live the way he lives and stir up a revolution. This is a man and more than a man, telling his disciples that he has come into the world to serve them. He does not want them to serve him, and he will lay down his life so that their lives can be ransomed from sin and death. This is unheard of. You need to feel how wild this is. No man ever spoke this way except in a mental hospital. No respected religious leader ever said this. Either Jesus is above every ordinary teacher with some supernatural power and dignity, or he is a lunatic. When he calls for radical, self-sacrificing discipleship, he gives a reason. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom of many. Yet, yes, this is a call to act the way he acted, but so much more. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Not to be served by whom? Whom does he not want to be served by? Answer, the very disciples that he is calling to drink his cup and endure his baptism and to be the slave of all. He is saying to them, yes, drink my cup. Yes, share my baptism. Yes, serve others. Yes, be the slave of all. This is what it means to be my disciple. But don't serve me. I have not come to be served. I will not be served like this. I will be the servant. I have not come to be served but to serve. In your relationship with me, I will be the servant. I will serve you. I will work for you. Now, I'm going to chase a little rabbit here, but I think it's important, and it's it's related to everything else that I'm going to say this morning. One of the ways, and for some people the primary way, that Satan robs believers of the blessings that are theirs in Christ, the blessings that are theirs for the taking, rightfully theirs, is by implanting in them a false humility that keeps them from believing what God has said is true about them in His Word. Now, what do I mean by that? For example, you hear things like this about Christ being your servant and Christ coming into the world not just as a servant of His Father, but actually to serve His people, to serve you as a Christian. You hear things like that and you say, but I'm so unworthy, you know, I've done so much wrong. I just, you know, by no means would I ever claim to have Christ as my servant. I mean, that's just too much. But you see, it's not about claiming anything. It's simply about believing what God himself has said is true about you. He said, this is true. This is the way it is. Now, God doesn't want your pious, false humility. He doesn't want that. He knows you're nothing. He knows that you're unworthy. You're not fooling him. He knows those things already. He knows that you're just a pile of dust. That's not the point. The point is that he's determined to take you, a pile of dust, and to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. And you can miss out on enjoying so much of that blessing by this false humility, which is really nothing more than pride in disguise. So don't give in to it. Don't give in to that. Take your stand upon the Word. Take your stand upon what God himself has said is true. Stop believing the devil and start believing God. He wants you to enjoy the blessings He's given you in Christ. And we could extend this same... There's so many different areas that this would extend into. Some of those passages I quoted earlier about God rejoicing over His people to do them good or God shouting with joy and singing over His people. You'd say, no, that's, that's too much. I just, I just can't believe that. I'm so unworthy. Yeah, He knows that, but that's not the point, you see. These things are true whether you believe them or not, but your refusal to believe them will really alter your enjoyment of them, which is why there's such a need to guard against any kind of false humility that would creep in, which is really nothing more than unbelief and disguise. So, again, this morning, I'm telling you, God's telling you that Christ is your servant. If you're a Christian here this morning, Christ is your servant. Believe it, rest in it, rejoice in it, and learn from it.
So not only was Christ sent into the world to serve his Father, but he was also sent into the world to serve you and to serve me. This is, this is really amazing. Think about this. If someone were to ask you as a Christian, what does Christ mean to you? Who is Christ to you? You could say, Christ is my Savior. And you could also say, Christ is my servant. Incredible. He came as a servant, not as a tyrant. He came to give life, not to take life. He came to give us joy, not to snuff it out. He came to serve us true food and true drink, not to take from us and leave us starving. When you look at the life of Christ, you see him doing nothing but giving. That's all he ever did was give. He never asked for a thing from anybody. It was giving, giving, giving in everything, in his teaching, in his miracles, and then finally giving his life. All he did was give, never asked for anything. I like the way that Spurgeon says this. I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but I think it's a wonderful illustration. Spurgeon says, I heard a story, I think it came from the North Country. A minister called upon a poor woman intending to give her help, for he knew that she was very poor. With his money in his hand, he knocked at the door, but she did not answer. He concluded that she was not at home and went his way. A little later, he met her at the church and told her that he had remembered her need. I called at your house and knocked several times, and I suppose you were not at home, for I had no answer. At what hour did you call, sir? It was about noon. Oh, dear, she said, I heard you, sir, and I am so sorry I did not answer, but I thought it was the man calling for the rent. Many poor women know what this meant. Now, and then Spurgeon says this, Now it is my desire to be heard, and therefore I want to say that I am not calling for the rent. Indeed, it is not the object of this book to ask anything of you, but to tell you that salvation is all of grace, which means free, gratis, for nothing. So we can say this morning, beloved, that Christ did not come into the world to collect the rent. And that's the idea that most people have. When you talk to people on the street, most non-Christians, they believe that Christ came into the world to demand all these things of them, to collect the rent from them. And we can say this morning that's not why he came. And we need to hear this again and again, that how different Christianity is from every other world religion where you have to try to earn something, where you have to work to earn favor with God. But in Christianity, behind and before and underneath any serving that we ever do is this truth of God first serving us. Before we can begin to serve rightly, we have to start with this, that Jesus came into the world not to be served, but to serve. And apart from this, the gospel becomes nothing more than a moralism. You know, do these things. Live this way. How thankful we should be that Christ did not come to give just a list of rules, but he directs us to himself. He says, come unto me. And then when we do come to him, he girds himself and he serves us. We need to keep these things before us. So what I want to do then with the rest of our time this morning is just consider with you a few different ways in which Christ serves his people, a few different ways in which Christ is a servant to you as a Christian. And we're going to look at some passages that are probably familiar, but I'm hoping that maybe the Lord will shine a little new light on them as we consider them specifically from this perspective of Christ being a servant to us. So, how does Christ serve his people? First of all, he serves his people by hearing and answering our prayers. By hearing and answering our prayers. Not just the prayers of pastors, not just the prayers of missionaries, not just the prayers of those who have written books, but the prayers of those who work eight to five jobs, the prayers of students, the prayers of stay-at-home moms, the prayers of wives, the prayers of all of his people. Christ is a servant to each and every one of his people equally, and he hears and answers the prayers of all of his brethren. We hear that promise quoted a lot of times, the promise of the new covenant, that they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Well, I can tell you in the same way that every Christian knows God, in the same way Christ is a servant to every one of his people, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Christ is a servant to them. Hebrews chapter 4. This is one of those sections that every Christian should strive to memorize. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, these are familiar words, but it changes things when you realize that not only is Christ your great high priest, as it says in verse 14, but he is also your servant. And when we draw near to him, we're not just drawing near to our high priest, we're drawing near to the one who delights to serve his people. So we can come with confidence. It says, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, knowing that he awaits us there. Christ, our servant, awaits us there to give grace and mercy, mercy and grace to help in time of need. It says this in Isaiah 30, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and he waits on high to have compassion on you. He's there as your servant to hear and to answer your prayers. And then again in John chapter 14, John chapter 14 and verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you hear the servant language there? Ask me anything, I will do it. That's what a servant does. Everything that the master says, the servant does. Ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, think of this. Who was he saying this to? Think of who he was saying this to on this night in the upper room. He was saying it to these weak, pathetic disciples, one of whom was getting ready to deny three times that he even knew him, and then the other ones, except for John, all scattered and left him in his greatest hour of need. But that's who he gives the promise to, beloved, because that's the kind of people that he came to serve. And that's why it does not depend upon you, but it depends upon him. It depends upon his faithfulness. It depends upon his goodness. And this promise, I'm telling you, is for you here this morning. So Jim and Terry, Christ says to you this morning, ask me anything in my name and I will do it. He says, Andy, ask me anything in my name and I will do it. You see, it's an individual thing. It's for you as a Christian. It's for you to ask him, and he will do it. So again, I say Christ is a servant who hears and answers the prayers of his people. Secondly, he's a servant who bears our burdens and our anxieties. He's a servant who bears our burdens and our anxieties. You know, one thing that a servant does is they carry things for you. You know, it's pretty basic, but one of the things a servant does is they carry things for you, so you don't have to carry them. Christ is exactly the same way. And it's something, isn't it, that there are multitudes of people, and and you can see it in their face most of the time, but there are multitudes upon multitudes of people who go around day after day with just a constant sense of burden, a constant sense of anxiety, a constant sense of heaviness about them. And we just have no idea most of the time what people are going through and what people are feeling. I mean, it's really something. Then you finally sit down with a person and they let it all out and you just can't believe that that was really inside of them. You can't believe that what they were under, the things that they were suffering under. You know, and friends and doctors and counselors and medications and everything can only do so much. But for the Christian, everything is different. Why? Because the Christian has a divinely powerful person. A divinely powerful person. How powerful? Omnipotently powerful. Absolutely powerful who is both willing and able to bear any burden or anxiety that we can give him. He's both willing and able to bear it. He has to be both. It wouldn't help if he was willing but not able. It wouldn't help if he was able but not willing. He has to be both willing and able, and he is. Psalm 55, remember, we sing that little chorus, Cast your burden upon the Lord. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He takes your burden and He sustains you at the same time. And then in 1 Peter 5, He talks about casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. 
casting all your anxiety upon him. So again, I say we have a divinely powerful person, a servant who is willing to bear anything we can give him, who is able and willing to bear any anxiety, any care, any burden that we can give him. Notice, though, that we do have a responsibility. We have to cast it upon him. We have to be willing to give it up. We have to humble ourselves and say that we need help. We have to humble ourselves and get into the place where we're willing to acknowledge that we need help. And we have to cast that thing upon him, get it away from ourselves and cast it upon him. Just like you cast a fishing lure, you cast it away from you upon the Lord. Now you might say, yeah, but my burdens and my anxieties and everything are just so small compared to what some people go through. And in a way that might be true, but God doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about that. Peter doesn't say casting some of your anxieties upon him. He says casting all of your anxieties upon him. He doesn't put a limit on it. He says cast them all upon him because he cares for you. See, again, this is another case where that false humility a lot of times will keep us in bondage and keep us from the blessings that are ours. He doesn't even let a sparrow fall to the ground apart from him and all the hairs of your head are numbered. Surely Jesus tells us those things to encourage us that God cares about even the littlest things that we would call little that's going on in our lives and that we can give it to Him and cast it upon Him. We sing that hymn, What a friend we have in Jesus, all of our sins and griefs to bear. He doesn't just bear our sins, He bears our griefs. And that's what it says in Isaiah 53. He bears our griefs and He bears our sorrows too. What a Savior. Thirdly, Christ is a servant of His people by praying for us. By praying for us. How would you like to know that there was someone who was always praying for you, and not just always praying for you, but always praying for you with your best interests in mind? Now, How would you like to know that that person was the Lord Jesus Christ Himself? That's what the Bible teaches. Romans chapter 8. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. There's that word, intercedes for us. And then in Hebrews 7, it says the same thing, that he ever lives to make intercession, the word interceding, ever lives to make intercession for his people. Now, is Christ literally praying for us, or is this just figurative language? And some people take it that way. They say this is just kind of a picture of Christ in heaven. He doesn't really pray for us. But I think it's clear here that Paul has in mind a literal praying that Christ does on behalf of His people because He uses that word intercede, which is the exact same word that He uses back in verse 26 to talk about how the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And that's not just figurative language. That's a reality that the Spirit does in the life of the Christian. And so it's a literal praying that Christ does on behalf of His people. And you see it in His life as well. Again, Dick speaking out of John 17, what's Christ doing there? He's interceding for His people. He's praying for His people. And so you see it by His example too. And there in Luke 22, you have the same thing. Think of this in Luke 22. Jesus tells Peter ahead of time that he's going to fall. He tells him ahead of time that he's going to fall. That's something, isn't it? Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, but he says what? But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. I have prayed for you. You can be sure that if Christ had not prayed for him, Peter would have fallen away. You can be sure of that. It was too, it was too strong. That thing was too strong for Peter to handle. 
And you can be sure that if Christ had not prayed for him, he would have fallen away. And, beloved, how many times have we been in situations that were simply too great for us, trials that were too strong, temptations that were too strong, and you feel like you're going to break, you feel like that you're going to cave in, and you may even fall temporarily, but lo and behold, you come out on the other side of the thing. Why? I can tell you this, it's not because of the strength of your faith, and you know that, but it's because Christ is praying for you. Christ is interceding for you. We have no idea how many times our faith already in our Christian lives, we have no idea how many times our faith would have failed were it not for the intercession of Christ on our behalf, were it not for the fact that he is praying for us. But not only that, we can have confidence and we can be sure that our faith won't ever fail as Christians. Why? Because of what Paul is saying right here in Romans chapter 8. This is why Paul goes on to say what he does in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? How can he say that thing? How can he say that my weak, less than a mustard seed kind of faith and your weak faith, how can he say that we're going to be able to withstand tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. How can he say confidently that you as a Christian can handle all that and anything else that comes into your life? How can he say that? Because, verse 34, Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for you. That's the only reason. That's the only reason he can say that confidently. You might not know, believer, what kind of things God's going to bring into your life in the days ahead. And sometimes that can be kind of scary, especially when you look around and you see the things that he's brought into the lives of other Christians. And you think, man, if that ever happened to me, I just I don't know if I could handle it. Well, I can tell you with 100% confidence this morning that it doesn't matter what he brings into your life, that you're going to come through on the other side because Christ is praying for you and that nothing can separate you from his love. So Christ is a servant who prays for his people. Fourthly, Christ is a servant who provides spiritual food, spiritual nourishment for us. John chapter 6, verse 33. As you know, another function of a servant is to, to bring the food to the table, right? A servant provides the food, brings the food. Christ is no different. John chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says this, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Then if you flip over to verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he says in verse 53, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Verse 55, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And then in John 7, verse 37, Jesus says this, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, and this is something, he cried out. It said there in Isaiah 42 that he would not be the kind of person who cries out in the street. And so you know that if he did cry out about something, it's an important something. This is important. Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So providing food, providing drink. And also in Ephesians 5, we don't need to turn to this one, but Christ. Paul says there about the Lord Jesus Christ that he cherishes and nourishes the church. He nourishes the church. And I say to you this morning that we live in a dry and barren land where there is no, and I mean no whatsoever, none, 
no true food and true drink at all except in Christ, except in Him. You simply cannot live, if you're a Christian, you cannot live on physical bread alone. You cannot do it. The natural person, the the person who is not a Christian, can do that, but the spiritual person, the Christian, cannot. You need true food and true drink. And you know, we sing that hymn, Jesus has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. And it's something, isn't it? The food, whenever you look at um, different feasts and things in the New Testament, Jesus will tell parables about wedding feasts and that kind of thing. The food is always ready. You don't even have to prepare the food. It's always ready. The table's always already spread. The food is already laid out. It's already there, always. He has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. Think of that scene there in John 21 after the resurrection. The disciples are out there in the boat fishing, and they see the Lord appear on the shore, and they go to the shore, and lo and behold, they get there, and the meal's already prepared. Jesus cooked for them. Jesus cooked the food for them. See, you don't even have to make the food. It's not just that Jesus gives you the raw stuff and you have to cook it up. He even cooks for you too. That's the kind of servant that he is. The food is prepared. All you need to do is show up and eat. Now, this should be a tremendous encouragement to us when it comes to feeding our own souls, knowing that Jesus is always there, ready to serve us, ready to wait upon us, ready to feed us with true food and true drink. So remember this. Next time you sit down to read your Bible, remember that you're not just coming to a book, but you're coming to a living person. You're coming to a living person who waits to serve you true food and true drink. It's always ready. It says in Psalm 36 that He will give us to drink from the river of His delights. And that's something to pray. You know, when you sit down to read in the morning or night or whatever, Lord, give me to drink from the river of Your delights today. I like the way Rutherford said this in a quote from his letters. He said, There is as much in our Lord's pantry as will satisfy all His children and as much wine in his cellar as will quench all their thirst. Hunger on, for there is meat and hunger for Christ. Go never from him, but pester him, who yet is pleased with the importunity of hungry souls, with a dishful of hungry desires, till he fill you. And if he delay, yet come not away, although although you should fall a swoon at his feet. So, again, go to Christ for food, go to him for drink. And if if it doesn't come immediately, if he doesn't serve you immediately, then wait, because it will. It will come. He will feed his people. He will feed his sheep. It's like Rutherford said, it's better to fall down at his it's better to swoon down at his feet, passed out from lack of food, than go away from him, because you can't get it anywhere else anyway. It's better to fall down right there and wait for Christ to serve you, because he will do that. Okay, a couple more. Number five, Christ is a servant who washes our feet, cleansing us from the daily defilements of sin. He washes our feet, cleansing us from the daily defilements of sin. And this, of course, is in John chapter 13. This is another one of those passages that's so familiar to us, and yet... So it's shocking, really, to to see here what happens. If we had no other verses that talked about Christ being a servant to His people, this, this would be enough in and of itself, just to show that this is the kind of Savior that He is, a Savior who serves. Okay, before we actually get to the part where He washes the feet, I want to read verses 1 through 3 with you, because this is extremely important. A lot of people miss this. Verse 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing, pay attention to that word, knowing, knowing that His hour had come that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Him, Jesus, here it is again, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside His garments, and taking a towel, He girded Himself. Now, 
Why did I read those verses? Because that key word there, knowing, shows us that what Jesus did here in the verses that follow, getting up and wrapping that towel around his feet and washing his disciples' feet, he did this as he was fully conscious of who he was, fully conscious of his deity, fully conscious of where he had come from and where he was going back to, fully conscious of the mission that God had given him to do. In other words, this is not just a momentary lapse of judgment on Jesus' part. It's not like, whoa, Jesus, what are you doing? I mean, he did this knowing at the very time that he was doing it, knowing where he had come from, knowing that he came from God, knowing that he was going back up to God, knowing that he was fully deity, knowing that he was God incarnate, knowing all of that in his mind, knowing that, he takes that towel and wraps himself and washes the disciples' feet. It's incredible. He did this with full awareness of who he was, full awareness of his deity. Okay, now, verse 4. He got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Here's almost an example of that false humility we were talking about. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. You know, I'm not worthy to have you wash my feet. And in a sense, that's true, isn't it? But nevertheless, when the Lord's sitting there with a towel and a basin of water, getting ready to wash your feet, you don't say that kind of stuff. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. There's the rebuke. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For, his, for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Now, what is Jesus doing here? What's this thing about that he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, and why is Jesus washing their feet? And it's not an easy passage in some ways, and if you read different people, I mean, some people just, they start talking about the the Lord's Supper, and they start talking about baptism, and they start talking about all this stuff. And again, I think that they're confusing physical things with spiritual things, and they're missing the point of what Jesus is doing here. And I think what he means is this. We are already clean as Christians. We are already clean. And he said that earlier, too. You're already clean through the word that I've spoken to you. And I think what he's saying is that we're already clean because of what God has done for us and justifying us and regenerating us, making us new new creatures, new creations in Christ. It talks about that in Titus 3 with the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit that being justified by his grace. So it's talking about a washing that every Christian has. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So every Christian is already clean. Nevertheless, even though every Christian has been justified and regenerated and is already clean in that sense, there's still a daily defilement that we experience just because we live in a fallen world and we walk around in a fallen world. There's a daily defilement that clings to us just from that alone. You'll remember earlier in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Give us this day our, our daily bread. This is how he taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. And so he instructs Christians to pray every day to give us this day our daily bread and to forgive us our debts. So assuming there that there's a debt, there's a kind of defilement, a daily defilement that a Christian can pick up just by living in this fallen world. And so... What Jesus is telling us here then with this washing of the disciples' feet in John 13 is that they're already clean because of his word spoken to them. They're already clean by justification and regeneration. Well, all they need is to have their feet washed. All they need is to have this daily defilement cleansed away. And so we get before God in the morning or in the evening or whatever, and we ask for a daily forgiveness. Forgive us, forgive me this day my debts. Forgive me my sins this day. And as we're praying, and this is, this is the picture Christ gives us, as we're praying that, Christ gets up and he wraps a towel around himself and he says, I'll take care of that. I'll wash those feet right there. No one can wash feet like Jesus can. And he never misses a spot. You never have to worry about that if you confess your sins that there's 
ever going to be something that Christ doesn't wash off. He never misses a spot. So He washes our feet, cleansing us from the daily defilements of sin. I mean, that is such a wonderful truth to know that you're in a right relationship with God, to know that your your salvation is secure, and yet to know that you're still going to fall, you're still going to fail, and God knows that, and He provides a remedy for that. He says, come to me, let me wash your feet, let me serve you, let me clean those feet, and He does that, and it rejoices Him to do that. Okay, lastly... Christ is a servant who gives his life as a ransom on our behalf. And of course, this comes directly from the verse that we read in Matthew chapter 20. We'll just read it one more time here to get a feel for it. Matthew 20. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. To give His life a ransom for many. Now, what is a ransom? Can anybody think of, how would you define a ransom? Or what, can you think of a situation where you typically hear the word ransom being used? Anybody think of anything? Okay, exactly. Kidnapping. When someone is kidnapped, they'll call the parents or whatever, and they'll demand a ransom, right? Now, what is a ransom? Then a ransom is something that's paid, uh, a payment that's, that's given to secure the release of the person that's been taken captive. So a ransom is a payment that's given to secure the release of the person that's been kidnapped or the person that's been held captive. Only, in this case, Peter tells us, we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. And that's something, isn't it? Even the most precious things in the world, like silver and gold, he calls them perishable things. Perishable, they wear out, they rot. We're not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold or any kind of money, but with the precious blood of Christ. In other words, God didn't just give a lot in order to save you. He gave everything. He didn't just give something good or valuable, but He gave His best and the most valuable thing that He could ever possibly give. You could search the universe over, and you could search the heavens and below. You could search visible and invisible. You can search all over this universe and not find anything that is of more worth that God could have given in order to save you than what He actually did give to save you. The precious blood of Christ. He gave the best that He had. You know, it's something. We honor fallen war heroes. Someone dies in a war, and the town, maybe their hometown, will have a parade for them to honor them. And that's good and right, and they should do that. But people will do that, and then they'll go to church, and they'll hear a sermon about God becoming a man, the Word becoming flesh, and dying for sins. And they'll think, man, this, when is this going to be over with so I can go home and watch the football game? I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? But this ransom that was paid, and this is really what I want to say on this thing of ransom. I don't want to get too deep into this this morning. It's a sermon in itself. But what I do want to say is that this ransom that Christ paid is the foundation of everything else that we've heard about this morning. Now, why do I say that? Let me ask you this, how can you know, as a Christian, how can you know that everything that we've said this morning is for you? How can you know that God is going to be your servant? How can you know that Christ, for sure, how can you know that Christ will be your servant? Not just now, and not just when you're feeling good spiritually, not just when you're walking close to God, but in the dry times, in the times when you're feeling spiritually depressed, how can you know, even those times, how can you know that Christ will be your servant? We can know because of what Paul says again in Romans chapter 8. We already read it, but let's go back there again in verse 31. Romans 8, 31.
Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And verse 32 is the key. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, what Paul is saying here this morning is that if Christ has already done the hardest thing that he could possibly do in order to secure your salvation, paying that ransom for you, if he could already do the hardest possible thing, then surely he's going to do everything else that we've talked about here this morning. And that's the promise of Romans 8.32. And that's something to bank on. That's something to put your weight upon right there. If you know that Christ has already done the hardest thing he could possibly do, it's already been accomplished. The hardest part has already been done. Giving himself as a ransom for many, paying that price. If he can do that, then surely he's going to do all these little lesser things. And really, that's what, what we've talked about this morning are little things compared to what Christ did in giving himself as a ransom. But that's Paul's logic here. If he did the hardest thing, surely he's going to do all these lesser things. And surely we can know then that even in times of dryness and darkness and everything else, we can know that Christ is still our servant because he laid the foundation for that in paying the ransom for our salvation, giving himself as a ransom for his people. Okay, just in closing, I wanted to say a few things by way of application. Just a few things here. First of all, Beware of those who would desire to subject you again to a yoke of slavery. And this is what Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the essence of the situation here in Galatia, and you might say, I mean, this thing is circumcision, and Paul's talking about don't be circumcised, you'll have to keep the whole law. I mean, how does that all apply to us nowadays? Well, the essence of what Paul is saying in Galatians is that they're, well, they were teaching, these, these Galatian Judaizers were teaching that there are certain things that you had to do in order to be right with God. In other words, Jesus isn't enough that you have to start doing a few other things. Jesus is good, and that's the starting point, but you have to add a few things to Jesus in order to get there. Jesus himself is not enough. Faith in Jesus isn't enough. You have to start doing some things. And now this, for us today, again, this can be an obvious type of thing of legalistic rule-keeping. Um, you know, women have to have their hair this length. They can't wear pants. Guys have to wear these certain kind of clothes or whatever. And it can be something obvious like that, but it can also be something that's not quite so obvious. It can just be a bondage of religious performance, you know, feeling like you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to merit God's favor. And even as Christians, we fall into that all the time. Either way, Paul says, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And one of the ways that this kind of bondage can manifest itself is what I like to call the Nike mentality. Does anyone know what the Nike um, slogan is? Just do it, right? Just do it. And as Christians, we can get into this thing of, you know, I, I need to do more for the Lord. I need to do more for the Lord. And sometimes that's right and that's good. But I tell you, Satan so easily can take that and turn it into a bondage. And just to explain what I mean here, I wanted to read a quote from Conrad Merle. Some of you know Conrad, and this is from his book, Practical Demonology. And I wouldn't normally read something like this, but knowing Conrad and knowing the man that he is and, and how biblical he is, I feel comfortable reading this. Um, but I think this will help some of you. Conrad said this, One of the demons that causes so much mental and spiritual torment among Christians today seems to be an accusing spirit. I had long suspected that what many people were accepting as Holy Spirit conviction was nothing less than demonic accusation, and preachers of the evangelical world have played right into their hands. As we began to deal with demons directly, this was confirmed to us. A demon will accuse a person of not, quote, doing enough for the Lord. He doesn't know what he should do, but he's miserable because he's not serving the Lord more. He surrenders to preach. She surrenders for missions or to teach or to be a missionary nurse. 
Yet, God never opens doors for them because their call was demonic and he has not called them. They attempt to do what they think God has called them to do and they fail miserably. Then the demon accuses them of failure. Every church I go in, there are half a dozen or more men, young and old, whom God has called into full-time service. But the call happened five or ten or maybe twenty years ago, yet the God who called them has never opened any doors of service for them. So they sit around and wait. They are preachers, but they're miserable, confused, and useless. Young people quit their jobs to have more time to study and pray. They never have any ministry, and their witness is is worthless because they become a drag and drain on everyone else, being supported often by their non-Christian friends. I have often had demons boast of what they have done to their victims in this area. I accuse her because she has not done something. Then when she has done it, I accuse her for doing the wrong thing. She thinks I am God. Another way accusing demons torment people is by constantly reminding them of past confessed sins and making them feel unfit for the favor of God. This is why the devil and demons hate the blood of Christ so much. Anytime the wicked one reminds me of my wickedness, I simply confess that it is so and then point to the blood which washes away my sins. I then claim my righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing else for him to accuse. Plead guilty and plead the blood. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit does not accuse. He convicts and convinces but does not accuse. The devil is the accuser of the brethren and comforter of the wicked. The Holy Spirit is the convincer of the disobedient and sinful and the comforter of the brethren. Make no mistake, dear friend, if God wants you to do something, he is perfectly able to let you know in no uncertain terms exactly what he wants you to do and will open the doors for the ministry and your ministry will be effective. Don't let ambitious men help put you in bondage to the devil's accusation. So again, I say to you, before any service takes place on our part as Christians, we have to first learn to be served by the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we can do anything rightly, we have to first learn to be served by the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, our walk with God will degenerate into nothing but a performance that we do to try to merit God's favor. If we're not first being served by Him and in communion with Him and feeding upon Him and allowing Him to serve us, everything we do will just be a a meritorious kind of thing we try to do to merit His favor. I like the way this is illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son. I'll just read this to you quickly here in Luke 15. You know the story. He takes his father's inheritance and squanders it in a distant land. And then in verse 17 it says, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him. Now he's preparing his speech for his father now. This is what he's going to tell his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he's got his speech prepared and here he goes. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, now here he goes, he's getting ready to deliver a speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice what happens. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. You see, he couldn't even get his whole speech out to his father. His father cuts him off and says, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about what you're going to do for me. I don't want to hear about how sorry you are. I just want to serve you. I just want to take you in and celebrate. Kill the fattened calf. Put the best robe on him. Extravagant. You see, he doesn't even listen to hear hear his whole speech. He doesn't even wait for the son to get the speech out. In other words, God is not so concerned about hearing your big plans for what you're going to do for Him. He wants to serve you. He wants to serve you. Okay, secondly, beware of preaching a false, moralistic gospel that focuses more on what a person does for God rather than what God does for them. Now, this can be subtle, and I think a lot of times it's just a matter of emphasis, but the bottom line is, and I would say this, 
If you're talking with a person about the gospel and you leave them with the impression that being a Christian is about doing X, Y, and Z, it's about doing this and doing that and doing a bunch of other stuff, then you haven't communicated the gospel properly. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not doing things. Okay, even, even gospel things, even praying and reading your Bible and fellowshipping, it's not ultimately about those kinds of things, ultimately at its heart. So beware of leaving people with that impression. Thirdly, I would say this, learn to be served. And this has come out again and again, but learn to be served. Christ said, apart from Him, we could do nothing. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. It's amazing how little we really believe that. And oftentimes the biggest thing standing in the way of God serving us is our own pride. You know, we pray about something, but we really don't expect God to do much about it. And we really think at the end of the day, I'm just going to have to work something up and get this thing taken care of. Our own self-sufficiency. See, if you're praying with that mentality, it shows right there that you're not really believing that apart from Him you can do nothing. Because if you did really believe that, you wouldn't get up from that time of prayer until you knew that Christ was with you that Christ had served you and given you strength and enabled you to go and accomplish what you needed to do. He is glorified by meeting your needs, not by you trying to meet supposed needs that you think that He has. And then lastly, to balance some things out here, as Christians, we should be giving our lives in service to others. Giving our lives in service to others. And I don't want you to come away thinking that I'm saying that Christians don't serve people or that's, we don't have a responsibility to do that, because we do. But what does Peter say in 1 Peter 4? He says, Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see, if you serve in your own strength, you rob God of His glory. Because you're saying that I can do this thing apart from Him, I can do it in my own strength. And you rob God of His glory. But when you serve in the strength that He supplies, you get the strength, He gets the glory. Paul said in Galatians 5 that circumcision is nothing or uncircumcision, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. And Paul himself is a perfect example of one who literally poured himself out in service of other people. He literally poured himself out for the sake of others. He said that he endured all things for the sake of the elect and that he labored more than any of the other apostles. That's quite a statement for him to make, to just come out and say, I labored more than any of the other apostles. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. But he's quick to say, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And then he also says in Colossians 1.29, he says, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And so, yes, Paul strove in the Christian life. He strove with all of his might. And yet, he says that I strove according to his power, which mightily works within me. He could only strive so much as God enabled him to strive and God strengthened him to strive. So again, what's that all mean? It means that for behind everything, behind, before, underneath, around, anything that we do as Christians, we have to first be served by God. We have to first be strengthened by God. We have to first commune with God. And that's where it begins. And as an overflow of that, as an outflow of that abundance and joy, we serve other people. And I thought I would just leave you with this. I didn't really know where to put this, so I just tacked it on at the end. You might ask, is this thing of Christ serving us, is this just limited to now? Is it just limited to our pilgrimage on earth? And I'm happy to say that it's not just limited to that. How do we know? Well, here's one passage. I'll just read this to you. Luke 12, Christ is talking about His second coming. And He's telling the disciples, "...be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit." Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait 
on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them, so blessed are those slaves. So I'm here to tell you that this thing of Christ serving us, it continues right on into the new heavens and the new earth. Christ is going to come back. And yes, Revelation talks about us serving him too. That is there. But again, before and prior to everything, Christ comes back and he says, all right, here I am. Go ahead and sit down over there. I'll serve you a meal. And he girds himself to serve us. I mean, that's, that's our Savior, beloved. That's the kind of God that we serve. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he wonderful? You may have had some good meals on this earth, but I tell you what, you're not going to want to miss out on that one. Well, that's all I have.